Hello, this is Pizzicato Ost, and I am Leo Javetsky. Today we're recommending a recording that came out on Deutsche Grammophon in 1991. It contains four orchestral suites by Georges Bizet, played by the orchestra of the Opéra Bastille, conducted by Myung Vung Chung. Now, first I'd like to say that I do not speak Korean, and I'm pronouncing the name of the conductor the way it has become customary to pronounce in, in Europe. Next, um, I'd like to play a little tune that will prove that you've definitely heard some music by Bizet, at least if you were born prior to 1995 or so. Bizet was another composer of the Romantic era who died very young, at the age of 36. So we have Schubert, who died at 31, Bellini at 33, and Chopin and Mendelssohn at 38. Now, of course, Bizet is the composer of Carmen, which almost 150 years after its creation stays one of the most popular pieces of the repertoire in opera houses around the world. However, this was his last finished piece, and the others, some less and some more, are also being performed, recorded, and are worth some attention. Born in 1838 in Paris, Bizet enters the Paris Conservatory at the age of 10 and studies, among others, with Charles Gounod, founder of the French Opéra Lyrique, whose works are still quite popular today, especially his operas Faust and Romeo and Juliet.
This was Gounod's Ave Maria, based on Bach's C major prelude, in an arrangement for cello and piano, played by Yo-Yo Ma and Catherine Stott. In his early years at the conservatory, he also meets Camille Saint-Saëns, three years older than Bizet, and also a student at the conservatory, who was to become a great composer and an organist. In 1853, he joined the composition class of Fromental à Lévis, a representative of the big, heavy, grand opera style. Not so popular today, but a big name at that time. As a student of the conservatory, uh, Bizet becomes a brilliant pianist. We have a recollection of Liszt, and it seems like nothing escapes the eyes of this guy because he's being mentioned in every second episode of our show, at least. In May 1861, Bizet gave a rare demonstration of his virtuoso skills when, at a dinner party uh, at which Liszt was present, he astonished everyone by playing on sight, apparently flawlessly, one of the maestro's most difficult pieces, to which Liszt said, I thought there was only one man able to play this. Evidently, now there are two of us. Again, I've taken the liberty of supposing what difficult list piece Bizet might have played from sight to impress everyone so much. And I assume that I would be very surprised if someone could play the E major etude from the Paganini etudes by Liszt, like we've just heard done by Daniel Trifonov. At the age of 17, Bizet composes a symphony in C major, which bears a very close resemblance to Gounod's symphony, 
note for note in some passages, which is easy to explain because of the closeness of the two composers. What is harder to explain is why the symphony reminds so much of the symphonic works of Schubert. His music was hardly known in Paris at the time, except for maybe a few of the songs. Bizet never published the symphony, and it came to light again only in 1933, and was finally performed a few years later in 1935, and can still be heard today, although not a common repertoire piece. Bizet's studies are going very well, and he receives the famous Prix de Rome twice, which allows him to spend three years in Rome and dedicate his time to composing. This was the only time of his life he'd spent outside of Paris. He's then still under a great impression of the titan of romantic opera, Joaquino Rossini, whom Bizet met on several occasions because Rossini was spending his uh, last years in Paris and was often seen at parties given by Jacques Offenbach, where Bizet was also among the young guests. Bizet describes Rossini as the greatest of them all, because like Mozart, he had all the virtues. Bizet's work at the time is notably in the manner of the great Rossini. After three years in Rome, Bizet returns to Paris and composes quite a lot. Finding a proper job and earning a penny is quite difficult. In April 1862, Bizet receives an offer to compose the music for three-act opera. This was Les Pêcheurs de Perles, or The Pearl Fishers. And even though um, Berlioz writes about it that it does Monsieur Bizet the greatest honor, the success of the piece is insignificant. Yeah. 
This was the great Swedish tenor Jussi Björling singing one of the hit arias from the opera The Pearl Fishers. Public reaction is somewhat lukewarm, and the opera's run ends after 18 performances. It was not performed again up until uh, 1886, over 20 years later. Bizet makes money by composing light music for cafes and by making arrangements of existing works for piano, as well as teaching the piano and composition. He also works as an accompanist at rehearsals and auditions. Another typical move for a Romantic-era composer, Bizet also writes articles, in his case for the Revue Nationale et Étranger, where he writes under the name Gaston de Betsy. Since 1862, Bizet's been working intermittently on Ivan IV, an opera based on the life of Ivan the Terrible. The work was also never performed and was only rediscovered in the mid-20th century, but is even nowadays a very obscure repertoire piece. Bizet reaches the peak of his artistic forces in the early 1870s, the last years of his life. The works on our recommended recording all derive from this period. So I will pause the biography of Bizet for the time being and will tell you about the performers on our recording, after which we'll return to the 1870s and go into a more detailed overview of the period and the pieces that emerged. So, we have the Orchestre de l'Opéra Bastille in this recording. And this is confusing, because there is also the Orchestre de l'Opéra Nationale de Paris. Easy solution, it's the same orchestra, ever since 1672. Well, not really the same musicians, most probably. Anyway, um, when in 1989 the new big modern opera house was inaugurated in the 12th arrondissement, where some 200 years earlier the start of the great French Revolution was marked by the siege of Bastille, the Opéra Nationale de Paris started dividing its performances between two stages, the historic Palais Garnier, which was tiny and totally unfitting for modern big productions anymore, and the Opéra Bastille. Along with that, the naming of the orchestra became a bit of a difficulty at some point, but as far as I know, nobody uses Bastille anymore, and the orchestra's official title is Orchestre de l'Opéra Nationale de Paris. Now, not to try to summarize some 350 years of the orchestra's history, um, let's just give a quick mention that it was founded in 1672 by Jean-Baptiste Lully, who was the court composer of Louis XIV. There was a great rise of interest in the music of Lully in the end of the 20th century, and he's very nicely depicted in the uh, French movie Le Roi Danse from the year 2000, if you just care to... Uh, um, have an image of what sort of a character it was. 
Lully was also the first known victim of the work of a conductor. Conducting then was mostly done with a long staff, like the ones you sometimes see with uh, military or marching bands. And on a performance in 1687, Lully struck his foot with his long conducting staff. He refused to have his leg amputated so he could still dance. This resulted in gangrene propagating throughout his body and ultimately infecting the greater part of his brain, causing his death. This was Les Folies d'Espagne by Lully, played by the Musica Antica Köln Orchestra. And um, this was in the movie Le Roi Danse. Now, back in the late 1980s, the opening of the new opera house, the Opera Bastille, was the subject of a huge political, economical, artistic scandal. 
In um, 1987, Daniel Barenboim, who also seems to be a hero of almost each of our episodes. Uh, so Daniel Barenboim, who had been chief conductor of the Orchestre de Paris since 1975, and this is one of France's main symphony orchestras, he was hired to become the first artistic director of the Opéra Bastille and began planning the first seasons. In January 89, six months before the inauguration of the new house, the company's board chairman, Pierre Berger, otherwise head of the Yves Saint Laurent fashion house, fires Barenboim. Reportedly, after the conductor refused to cut his pay by half, as well as due to his modernist musical tastes, which Berger saw unfit for a popular opera house. We should also note that Barenboim had been hired by a right-wing government, while Berger was a big supporter and donor of the Socialist Party. Now, this decision made total chaos in the artistic field. Stage director Patrice Chéreau backed off the staging of the inauguration gala. Composer and conductor Pierre Boulez resigned from the board of directors and uh, Herbert von Karajan and Georg Scholti, as well as a few other prominent conductors, signed a letter uh, protesting and calling a boycott of the Opera Bastille, cancelling their own concerts there. This made the search for a new artistic director very difficult. Later that year, Berger was finally able to announce the appointment of Korean pianist and conductor Myung Wung Chung, then young and practically unknown in France, who was 34 at the time. Chung's first performance at the Opera took place in May 1990. Now, Chung was born in 1953 in Seoul, Korea, and had studied the piano first in Korea and then in New York. He started conducting at the age of 18. In um, 1974, he received second prize at the Tchaikovsky competition. By the way, that same year, the fourth prize goes to the great pianist Andras Schiff. Thank you. 
Now, this was the only proper recording I could find of Chung from the Tchaikovsky competition. Here he's playing number 10, October, or Autumn Song, from Tchaikovsky's piano cycle, The Seasons. In the 70s, Chung assists the great conductor Carlo Maria Giulini in Los Angeles and starts a proper conducting career in the early mid 1980s. With his cellist and violinist sisters, they also perform as the Chung Trio. Now, apart from the standard symphonic and operatic repertoire, Chung is also known as an interpreter of the music of Olivier Messiaen. In 1994, he performed the world premiere of Messiaen's last work, the Concert à Quatre, which the composer dedicated to Chung and the Orchestre de l'Opéra Bastille. A recording of this is also available. Now back with the Paris Opera, although Chung's term was extended to last until the year 2000, he was uh, fired in 1994 after the right-wing coalition's election victory and a power play within the company. At the height of the conflict, Chung was physically prevented from entering the building despite a judicial ruling in his favor. But anyway, these are matters past and go far beyond the period when our recording was made. So... Let us now go back to the 1870s when Georges Bizet is experiencing the best period of his career. In 1871, he completes a 12-piece suite for piano four hands entitled Jeux d'Enfants, or Children's Games. Later, he orchestrates five of the pieces and presents it as his Petite Suite d'Orchestre. The entire set is filled with this youthful wonder and charming, memorable tunes. In his miniatures of childhood scenes and games, Bizet alternates idyllic, slow and graceful pieces with swift and agile sections imitating the characteristic animation of a toy or game being played. It is a light, bright narrative of children's games. Let's hear one number of the original Piano Four Hands work, um, the number 11 called Petit Marie, Petite Femme, Little Husband, Little Wife. It's a slow movement with a touch of romance, depicting a pretend game of husband and wife. Thank you. 
This was Petit Mari, Petite Femme, from Bizet's Jeu d'Enfant, played by Mata Argerich and Daniel Barenboim, live as an encore in their concert in Vienna in 2017. Now, let's take a quick look at the orchestral suite, which makes the middle section of our recommended recording with the orchestra of the Opera Bastille and Myung-Hul Chung. And start by listening to the same number we've just heard on the piano four hands, but now in the orchestral version.
the first number of the suite is a perky march called trompette et tambour, or trumpet and drum. It's mostly a low-key two-step featuring woodwinds as much as trumpets, militaristic only insofar as it might accompany the activities of toy soldiers. Things get a little rough in the middle section, in which a crude phrase is pronounced by the orchestra, but the initial march material closes out the piece. Next comes a gentle berceuse, a lullaby, subtitled La Poupée, the doll, over a wavy accompaniment in the low strings, the woodwinds and violins play a tender rocking theme. Then an abrupt chord wakes everyone up at the start of the impromptu, la toupie, the top. This is a brief scherzo full of whirling and chirping woodwind figures over wearing strings. The last movement is a sparkling gallop called Le Bal, the ball, as in a dance party, um, with its music hall finale tune pressing forward exuberantly, even while getting through a few sharp elbow chords in the woodwinds and brass. Um, the piece reminds us that kiddie dance parties can also be quite loud. music of the suite, filled with bounce and sparkle, um, has attracted the attention of many dancers. Jeu d'Enfant was first staged as a ballet in Monaco in 1932, choreographed by Leonid Messin. With costume design and surrealistic scenery by Joan Miro, um, Miro's designs remind something of the 
shining, hard-painted surfaces of actual toys. Bizet's opera Jamile was premiered in May 1872. It masterfully exploits Arabian folk motifs and uh, basically paves the path for the work that made him immortal, the opera Carmen. Jamile was poorly staged and incompetently sung. It closed after 11 performances, not to be heard again until 1938. His next major work assignment came from Paris's Vaudeville Theatre, where a new play by Alphonse Daudet, L'Arlesien, was being staged. L'Arlesien, which translates as The Girl from Arles, is loved by the young peasant Frédéric. However, upon discovering her infidelity prior to their wedding date, Frédéric approaches madness. His family tries a great length to save their son, but eventually Frédéric commits suicide by jumping off a balcony. The girl herself never appears on stage, thus becoming the magical, mysterious, unseen center of the piece. The theater that was staging the piece wanted incidental music for the show. This was supposed to depict the colors of Provence and help deepen the characters. Bizet composes 27 numbers of music, some tiny, only consisting of a few bars, his task being even more difficult since he only had an orchestra of 26 players at hand. Now, except for the standard instruments, he uses the saxophone, an instrument hardly ever heard in the symphony music, and the so-called tambourin provençal. When the play opened, it was a failure. The audience refused to see ordinary people on stage. This was not what they come to the theater for. Then also, what is this nonsense with the title character never appearing on stage? What's the point then? The music was also inappropriate. There was way too much of it, and it was much too complex to be heard accompanying the action on stage. After all, this was the theater, not the opera. Nevertheless, Bizet turned some of this incidental music into a uh, four-movement suite, which was performed later that year to an enthusiastic reception. This was already using a full symphony orchestra and is now known as L'Arlesien Suite No. 1. On our recommended recording, it follows the Petite Suite, so let's say a bit about the actual music. The suite starts with the prelude, where we get the somewhat contrasting characteristics of Frédéric, the main character, and his brother Jeannet, a dreamy, sensitive soul. The strong, energetic theme, which is based on a real religious hymn from Provence, is played by the violins. Afterwards, the theme is repeated by various sections of the orchestra. After reaching a climax, the theme fades away. It's followed by the theme associated with Janet, also named L'Innocent, and uses the saxophone. 
The prelude concludes with the theme associated with Frédéric himself. Thank you. 
The minuet following the prelude is a lively, simple-hearted folk dance with a very simple melody based on the repetition of the same sound. It's followed by a smooth, waltz-like melody in the colorful combination of the clarinet and the saxophone. The third movement, the adagietto, is a miniature full of ancient charm, with a transparent melody led by the string section, bringing us to the final number. It is the carillon, featuring a repeating bell tone pattern on the horns, mimicking the church bells.
The second Arlesian Suite was arranged by composer Ernst Giraud a few years after Bizet's death, and it was made from materials that were not used in the first suite, but also incorporating some other music of the composer. Um, it is also a row of wonderfully spirited, depictive music, um, but will not go into describing every movement, but rather just uh, play one, the last movement, the Farandole, which also uses the, um, the theme used in the prelude of the first suite.
further, in summer 1873, Bizet starts working on his new opera. The subject chosen for this project was Prosper Merime's short novel, Carmen. I have written a work that is all clarity and vivacity, full of color and melody, the composer writes when he finishes the piece. The opera premieres on March the 3rd, 1875. Composers Jules Massenet, Camille Saint-Saëns, and Charles Gounod were all at the first performance of the opera. It extended to four and a half hours. The final act didn't begin until after midnight. After the show, Massenet and Saint-Saëns were congratulatory, Gounod less so, accusing Bizet in stealing from him. Much of the press comment was negative, saying that the heroine was an amoral seductress rather than a woman of virtue. The public's reaction was also not enthusiastic, and Bizet wrote, I foresee a definite and hopeless flop. Well, we know how untrue that turned out to be. Guiraud, who had arranged the second suite of La Lesienne, also made two suites of Carmen. Some of these numbers are played in the opening of our recommended recording, and we can finish our episode with playing one, the famous Danse Bohème, as the last piece of music for today. Thank you. 
I hope you've enjoyed this episode. We would be very grateful for likes, shares, comments, and questions. Anything that could make our program better. We will be back with more music soon. And for now, bye-bye.